Hello, my name is Paul Adamson, the chairman of the EU-UK Forum and founder of Encompass Online. And welcome to London Calling EU, the podcast of the EU delegation to the UK. For this episode, we will be exploring the path ahead for the EU and UK's relationship in the foreign and security policy area. And no better guide to help us navigate that path is our guest, Pedro Serrano, the European Union's ambassador to the UK. Pedro Serrano started his diplomatic career in the Spanish Foreign Service and then moved to Brussels, so to speak, to become a senior advisor, deputy head of cabinet in the jargon, to the EU's first foreign policy chief, Javier Solana, in 2003. He then went on to open the EU's first mission to the United Nations in New York in 2010 and was most recently chief of staff to the EU's current foreign and security policy chief, Joseph Borrell. Welcome, Ambassador Pedro. Thank you so much, Paul. A real pleasure to be here with you and to have a chance of discussing EU-UK relations and the way forward. Well, thank you for your time. We are, as I said in the introduction, going to try and focus just on foreign security policy. But first, a tiny bit of history, a bit of education for our listeners, since you've been so closely involved since the outset in the establishment, the creation of an EU foreign security policy agenda and a policy going forward. How do you think things have developed in the 20 years since you're working for Javier Solana? Can the EU legitimately say and sincerely say it now has 20 years on an effective EU foreign security policy? Well, you know that the beginnings of a more structured and institutionalized foreign security and defense policy within the European Union was a bit the outcome of the Balkan Wars. And it was after the Balkan Wars that the European Union gave itself a high representative with less powers than the one we have today, and started developing, following the, the San Malo agreement between France and the UK, started developing its security and defense policy and developing a capacity for crisis management and developing the beginning of a coordination on defense capability matters. The crisis management was a mixed capability, was about being able to deploy civilian and military missions and operations and actually, Javier Solana built his position as a high representative very much on the fact that he could deploy people on the ground in order to bring peace and stability to different situations. The first years when we were creating the structures and then the processes, uh, the fact that we were creating them did not prevent Javier from being extremely active in pushing many initiatives forward in terms of deployment of missions and operations. And it did start in the Western Balkans, but very soon we were also having many missions in Eastern Europe, in Georgia. We are having missions, including in Asia, with one mission that was deployed in Aceh to bring peace, to stabilize and help in the demobilization process of the GAM guerrilla, as it was in Aceh, and many operations as well in Africa. Okay, though, to bring in the UK then into this discussion, uh, Pedro, of course, when the UK was a member of the European Union, it was often seen by many as an obstructive partner, a reluctant partner, a partner which didn't really support many areas of, of new policy areas that the EU was trying to develop. However, I hear you said in the past that the UK has always been behind most initiatives in the architecture of security and defense policy. So at the creation and the development of this policy, when the UK was still a member of the EU, how would you rate its contribution to that development? Well, we couldn't have developed these policies and, and all these structures and institutions if the UK had not agreed to it. Most of the difficulties about developing um, defense policy within the European Union were linked to whether this was in competition or not with NATO. 
And although it was clear from the outset that it was not in competition with NATO, and actually the EU treaties state very clearly that for EU member states that are also NATO members, NATO remains the basis of their collective defense. So it's established, uh, let's say, in our constitutional treaties. There were some fears uh, that there could be or competition for resources or we would be competing for uh, acting in different theaters. In my view, uh, fears were a bit excessive, but uh, immediately we started seeing that the European Union was deploying in theaters that NATO was not interested to deploy and having a different type of operations. And also where it was maybe less sensitive from a political perspective to have an EU deployment instead of a, a NATO deployment. And EU deployments were also civilian and EU deployments come also with many other instruments that the EU can deploy in terms of development or humanitarian assistance. And therefore, it's a different approach than the NATO one. So they're not in competition, but the NATO factor was an element in in developing defense capabilities or defense uh, policy in the European Union. And linked to that, whether the EU could have or not military operational headquarters. And slowly, (laughs) we have, because realities uh, have pushed in that direction, First, we agreed that NATO would be the basis or would provide capabilities to the EU itself. And these were the Berlin Accords that anyone that has studied this a bit uh, will remember. But the Berlin Accords had the challenge of the fact that they required full unanimity in the EU and in NATO. And from 2004 onwards, this became problematic. So in reality, we only have one Berlin plus operation that has been launched, which is in Bosnia-Herzegovina, with shape as the operational headquarters. Okay, we'll circle back then to this contribution at the outset of the UK in this broad area because it it will help us inform maybe in the discussion to conclude about the scope in the future of a collaboration between the EU and the UK. But in the meantime, let me bring you back to the present time more or less. When the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen took office uh, four years ago, she made a big point of saying, I want this to be a, a geopolitical commission, a geopolitical EU by extension. And I noticed that when the European External Action Service launched its uh, latest iteration of the strategic compass about 18 months ago, just after Russia's invasion of of Ukraine, in the forward to that policy document, your boss, Joseph Burrell, said, we now need to ensure that we turn the EU's geopolitical awakening into a more permanent strategic posture. So I come back to this point about the reality and the rhetoric. There's a strong, clear rhetoric being exposed regularly by senior people in the EU structure about a new geopolitical vocation of the EU. But my question now on the reality, how would you assess the reality of that geopolitical dimension? I think the geopolitical dimension has been a reality for many years now. So it's um, not that we are rediscovering or reinventing it. It's been in the making for many years. And the development of a security defense policy was an important step in building that uh, geopolitical dimension. The creation of the External Action Service in uh, the Lisbon Treaty was another important step with the powers given also to the High Representative that is also Vice President of the Commission with the responsibility for coordinating the external dimension of the action of the Commission, of course, under the authority of the President of the Commission. So the institutional setup has been in the making for a while and the reality of the EU acting as a true international actor and one of the main international actors is not new. It has been developing throughout the years. It's true that uh, we have been gaining progressively conscience. And one interesting way of, of seeing this is looking at the big 
the strategic documents that we developed in 2003, Solana's Doctrine. I can't remember right now off the top of my head how it was called. Then we had another one with Mogherini in 2016, and we ended up with uh, the most recent one with the strategic compass with, uh, with Borrell. So you see a bit the evolution. And one of the key elements of the evolution in here, the, the president of the commission has been uh, very important in, in having this happen, is ensuring that all the instruments of the European Union, all the commission instruments, be they external action instruments or including the external dimensions of internal policies, are brought together in a common vision of what are the external interests of the European Union and how you can bring that to bear. And I'll finish with this saying that what happened in our reaction to the war in Ukraine has shown that actually, if you're looking at defense, you're not only looking at mobilizing military instruments. What we have done in Ukraine at many different levels and in many different dimensions with um, macrofinancial support, with humanitarian support, with diplomatic support, with providing the military equipment, all these shows that you need that plurality of instruments and bring them together with one political goal, bringing, and normally our political goals are to bring greater security, greater prosperity, and to contribute to democracy. So put all that together, that package of new initiatives. Again, your boss Morella said, we have taken these rapid actions. You've been describing yourself. And he uses the phrase broken several taboos along the way. In effect, what you've been talking about, sanctions, financing, delivery of military equipment, etc., etc. Does this mean now, in effect, there's no going back? There's a new ratchet been reached and the response of the EU in these kind of conflict areas like Ukraine, but potentially also the Middle East, frankly, is the new normal, the new reality. Well, the reality is that the European Union has become a vertebral column for security and, and democracy in Europe, and it cannot escape that reality. It has been honing its uh, instruments in order to be able to respond to those needs. It has been increasing the coordination and the coordinated deployment of those instruments. Is this the end of the process? Have we reached? Uh, uh, no, it's it's uh, always the European Union is, we, we refer to it always as a project. It's always in the making. And it has to improve. And are we doing things as wonderfully and as best as uh, could be done? No, probably there's uh, still a lot of progress to be done. But we have to look also at how other actors are intervening in the international community. Many of the problems that we're confronting are very intractable problems, very difficult, have been there for many decades, cannot be solved overnight. So it's not that the European Union is going to magically come up with solutions for all problems, but what it is doing it is acting more decisively. By the way, the fact that member states want this to happen is vital. So member states want the European Union to become this actor uh, with which they can align, through which they can also uh, deploy their own means and support, obviously, the, the, their security and their interest. And this is, again, work in the making, and it will continue to be so. When you say the member states want the EU to act more decisively, and the language is littered with phrases like more effectiveness, greater speed, more rapid responses, how concerned are you at all, if at all rather, that a unity would be maintained across the EU27, both in the case of Ukraine, uh, and frankly, we'll have to come on to it soon, the, the Middle East, it, there's a certain issue there that the EU is not automatically united on all fronts in these areas, is it? Well, the European Union has the enormous merit that it is not one country taking one decision, that it is bringing together 27 countries with more than 17 trillion economy with 450 million inhabitants. And that's not an easy thing to do. And there are many mechanisms that help us work together. The most important thing is that we share interests and we share values. 
And this helps us see most of our foreign affairs interest and defense interest in a similar way. And that's what really allows you at the end to act in common. If we look at what happened in Ukraine, I would say that we have been acting very much united and at a speed that no one would have ever imagined. We were able to put sanctions together in in a matter of, of almost hours after the invasion took place. We were able to start providing for the first time ever military assistance, uh, including delivering lethal equipment to Ukraine uh, just uh, a few days after the invasion took place. So the rapidity at which it has acted shows that, uh, yes, that we can, we are, we're capable of very effective and very quick action. Is it very easy all the time? No, it's difficult to work with 27 member states, but that's part of the challenge that we have. And again, the the big, uh, let's say, comforting uh, thought is that we really have common interests and that we do share values. And this helps us uh, work together and, and identify common goals and what do we have to do to achieve those goals? Well, we have, uh, as you know, both and I do, a new conflict to deal with in the Middle East. The EU has been widely criticized. The European Commission has been widely criticized about its initial response about how to respond to, first of all, the attack by Hamas and then the response by the Israelis to that attack. Do you think that criticism has been justified? And do you think lessons, more importantly, maybe rather than going over old ground, lessons have been learned? Well, I think that the European Union has come with a good position, very much reflected in the statement that was delivered by the heads of state and government just a few days ago, in which all the elements of what is happening now were dealt with and addressed. And that is the position of the European Union. And it has been elaborated at the highest level by all heads of state and government of the European Union. So there is unity in thought, there is unity in messaging. It's such a difficult situation as the one that we've been experiencing with this uh, horrific uh, attack by a terrorist organization in Israel is obviously something that uh, in initial reactions have needed to be further complemented by further reflection and further precision of thought and, and of line. And this is what is reflected very well in the statement by the 27 heads of state and government. Uh, then a quick question before we move on to future EU-UK collaboration. Do you have any concerns that the, the EU, in its broadest manifestation, uh, has the kind of the bandwidth, to use that jargon phrase, to deal with all these pressing matters? The, the crisis in the Middle East, Ukraine war is still going on, the aftermath of the pandemic in Europe, and so on and so on and so on. Does it have, in effect, the absorption capacity, to use another jargon phrase, to deal with all these crises? Well, I would say that the EU has more absorption capacity to deal with these crises than any state individually because we have more capacity collectively than we have individually. And therefore, if uh, the EU doesn't have it, I would ask who has the bandwidth to deal with these crises. The reality is that we're facing uh, extremely difficult uh, challenges internationally, but I am convinced, and I think that reality is uh, showing it as well, that working together as 27 is uh, much more effective than what would have been individual reactions by any member state. Is it easy to achieve? No, sometimes it is more difficult than others. But again, since we do have common values, since we do have common interest, we achieve it. Is it always perfect? Of course not. But I think we learn or try to learn from mistakes. We correct and we redress. But the important thing is that the European Union in reality, has become the vertebral column of, of security, democracy, and prosperity in Europe. And I think that is uh, quite clear when also when we see how it's acting. Again, I'm not saying that 
you know, we are always um, the best and doing uh, marvelously. We're striving to do as best as we can. But again, it's an organization of states, an organization run by human beings. And inevitably, we're human beings. I'm not saying that artificial intelligence is better, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but human beings are certainly flawed as well. All right. Well, let's finish off by talking about the future EU-UK collaboration. Very briefly, in the negotiations for the future relationship between the EU and UK, which ultimately became the Trade Cooperation Agreement, there was hope at one point that there would be some kind of uh, chapter on collaboration in the foreign security policy area. And then, for reasons uh, let's not go into them now, on the UK side, the, the UK government at the time decided to take all that out of the declaration accompanying the, the TCAs, it's called. But could you give a, a, a flavor now for our listeners before we talk about future possibilities of what is currently going on? Maybe it doesn't always make headline news, but can you give a, a, some examples of where the EU and the UK are, are working together uh, con effectively, constructively in the broad foreign security policy area? Well, Ukraine would be a very clear example of this. We've been sharing intelligence. We've been coordinating on sanctions uh, from day one. We're increasingly coordinating as well. Well, we've been coordinating through under the Rammstein process as well on delivery of military equipment. What is the Rammstein process, please, for people like me? Oh, sorry. Yes. Apologies. It's coordination amongst uh, essentially NATO allies on uh, the uh, military assistance that is being provided to Ukraine. And Rammstein is a main American base in Germany. And many meetings have been held there. We're also coordinating in terms of our, our political approach. We're coordinating on uh, fighting disinformation and manipulation of information. We have regular exchanges as well on key policy, foreign policy issues. So in reality, we maintain still quite a, a strong dialogue on all these issues. And I think to the mutual benefit. Does it matter that uh, a lot of this collaboration is not, in effect, codified, is not set out in some kind of treaty or communique, is now, more importantly, just to be pragmatic and get on with collaboration rather than spending too much time and, and giving ourselves too many headaches uh, trying to work out how to make this more systematic and more structured, this collaboration? Well, pragmatism, I understand, has always been a word uh, that the British are very fond of. And I would have to say that we are also very fond of it in the European Union. And in this case, we have uh, ongoing cooperation in all these fields. It is working. If anyone wants to go beyond and develop it further, I'm sure that there will be uh, interest in exploring what can be done further. But the important thing is that faced with the challenges that are confronting the international community, we're working together with the UK. And then the final question then, Pedro, where would you see the next steps of collaboration between the EU and UK in this, again, this foreign security area? And where would you like it to? What kind of, on this path metaphor, what kind of path would you like the EU and the UK to go down in the next period? You mean for foreign security and defense policy? Yes, in foreign security policy. Again, I think it's maybe more of what we're doing. Yeah. And maybe at some point uh, in a bit more systematic manner, it may be better. Do you see an appetite on both sides for that to happen? Let's see. I think there is a lot of interest on the UK side to continue this discussion. Then certainly there's an interest on our side. I think, you know, um, if, if I look at the partners, international partners for the European Union, I would say that uh, the UK, by its own nature and proximity and the values it, it upholds internationally, is the closest, most natural partner for the European Union. And I believe that it applies also the other way around. 
Okay. Well, that's the end of our Pasta Dig discussion. Pedro Serrano, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Paul. Real pleasure. You've been listening to London Calling EU, the podcast of the EU delegation to the UK. My name is Paul Adamson. Stay tuned for future episodes. Mm-hmm.